Hey there, welcome to the Daily Night, yet again, the Daily Night School. And I just want to point out real quick, you know, I've mentioned that how ever since Windows did this update, occasionally when I record, there'll be a high-pitched kind of, almost like a digital feedback sound, kind of subtle, but you can hear it behind my voice. And I noticed that yesterday's episode had that. I still haven't completely figured out what the cause is. You know, I thought it was gone, and it was, so I don't know why it came back. I'm just going to pretend it's on purpose. I don't want it to be there all the time, but if you ever hear that subtle high-pitched feedback in the background, just remember that it's there on purpose. It's there to keep the audiophiles away. It's called audiophile repellent, when you have a subtle high-pitched noise in the background. It's audiophile repellent. It kind of reminds me, my mom had this device years ago in her garage. It was an electrical, electronic device that you would plug in, and it would let out this very subtle, high-pitched noise throughout the entire garage, and it was there to keep rodents away. It wasn't a dog whistle, because you as a human could hear it, but it was this high-pitched electronic noise. And so that's what I'm using here, except instead of keeping rodents away, it's keeping the audiophiles away. And I mean, why even, I mean, it's kind of redundant. Audiophiles are rodents, so I'm trying to keep them all away. That said, hopefully this episode doesn't have that high-pitched noise, but if it does, you know why it's there. Keeping the audiophiles away. But today's topic is going to focus a lot on aesthetics and visuals, something I don't necessarily talk about much, despite being what you might call a visual artist. And visuals in general are interesting because, you know, there's obviously a strong spiritual connection with, with visuals, both art as well as simply sights. You know, someone can, on a beautiful day, someone can look out and see a tree and the lighting is just perfect, and that can be something akin to a spiritual experience, or it could be something blatant like religious artwork, religious iconography. And you even think about the absence of that, where, you know, in Islam, you can't have any iconography, you can't have any visual representation of Muhammad, but that itself is an aesthetic statement, because you can't get that out of your mind. While you might not be allowed to render him in visual form, the fact alone that you're barred from that is itself a visual representation in some way, especially because you can't disconnect yourself from what your imagination does naturally. It's like when you're reading a book, you know, even if it doesn't describe a character, you will see a visual of them in your head. Like, even if it doesn't mention their hair color or anything about them, your brain naturally does some kind of equation where you see what that person looks like in your brain, which is why when, say, a book is adapted to an animation or a movie and they show a character in a way that is different from the way you imagined them, it's off-putting. It can be very off-putting because it's different from your visual of, of what that character looked like. And even if the character is described in the book visually, you're still going to render them differently in your brain than other people will. And so the idea of like barring people from 
making a visual representation of Muhammad, you're still going to have a visual of Muhammad, and that itself is an aesthetic statement. Like, even if you just see a silhouette. But your brain's not really capable of comprehending the idea of a person or a figure, or even a religious figure. Your brain's not really capable of comprehending the idea of them without putting together some kind of visual of them. And with with that, you know, and, and I mean, just to talk a little bit about, you know, people have these profound experiences simply seeing the world in front of them. You know, for some person, it might be looking out, they might be staring at the Grand Canyon. And that might give them that sensation. For somebody else, it could be something totally mundane. It could be the light filtering in through their window. It happens to people, though. It gives somebody a sense of something. And that's widely accepted. I mean, the fact that we are such visually oriented people is just widely accepted. Nobody really has a reason to debate that. And you don't sound crazy when you talk about that. Like, someone doesn't have to be a spiritual person. They could be in complete spiritual denial and still readily accept that a visual has some profound impact on you. More so than an idea. Like, if you start talking to that person about some something else, like if you, if you start talking to that person about something philosophical or the way that you think about something, they might turn around and call you crazy. Are you crazy? You know, when you were talking about the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon, I believed you. The vastness of the Grand Canyon, I understand that. But the second you started th- talking about souls and Jesus, you know, I, I didn't, I, I'm just not even going to listen to you because you're crazy. So it's funny how we will readily accept that people can have transcendental experiences prompted by what they are seeing, whether it's something naturally occurring, whether it's artwork, I mean, just the existence of visual art itself, fine art, simply the existence of that alone is a testament to what I'm talking about. The fact that we make it, the fact that we observe it, the fact that we have preferences, the fact that some of it impacts us while some of it doesn't. And impacts us too in good and bad ways. We either like it, we hate it, we kind of like it, we respond to it is what I'm getting at. But also people of all different ways of thinking, people who think in many different ways, accept that we are stimulated in a certain way visually that transcends simply experience, you know. Like, I see that right now, and that's all there is to it. Somebody who's very secular, somebody who's an atheist, a pro-wrestling atheist, will still recognize that there is a certain power to aesthetics, there is a certain power to visuals. And uh, even when that's denied, you know, like in Islam, when you are denied representation of this figure, that itself still has a pretty profound effect. You know, the absence, the empty space still gives you something. And in some cases, it makes you want to express that even more. I mean, it certainly makes challengers to Islam want to draw Muhammad. Um, But uh, 
Yeah, getting to that idea, though, of like, oh, you're crazy for thinking a certain way. You're crazy. I am going to get into more into aesthetics here, but I just had a quick thought about that idea of telling somebody they're crazy. I think it's a good a good approach to life is to understand like what your boundaries are as far as sanity goes. I mean, both for yourself, but more importantly, for other people. Because we throw the word crazy around. And even if you don't use that word, it's something analogous to insanity. You know, it doesn't matter what the actual word you're using is, is that we all have a sense for like, oh, that person's crazy. And some of that is, you know, somebody might appear completely sane to you. They might be rational. They might live a productive life. They are a functioning human being. But if they share some idea they have or some belief they have, that can turn, you know, you can just spin around into this 180. Uh, it, it can it can spin you around, you know, 180 degrees, and you can suddenly be like, oh, I didn't know he was crazy. I didn't know he was crazy. Meanwhile, nothing about their actual life is crazy. They simply have this belief. They simply have this way of seeing the world, this way of seeing their own experience in the world that is at odds with what you consider normal or sane, and so they become crazy to you. And for me, my really my only, you know, the, the only parameter I put on sanity is how much of a threat you are to yourself or somebody else. I don't think of very many ideas these days as being insane. Delusional, maybe. You know, I think delusional is a word you can use, but it, it's also presumptuous. You know, you're presuming a lot about what that person is seeing and experiencing. And it's, and it's just no matter what, it's going to be condescending. Even if you have somebody else's interest in mind, even if you're concerned about their mental health, calling them delusional is always going to be somewhat condescending. But my own parameters pretty much come down to like, how much of a threat are you to your own self or other people? And that's kind of funny because most people don't necessarily see threatening behavior as insane. They know it's wrong. Like somebody who is behaving angrily or violently, it's not acceptable. But you won't necessarily see that and go, oh, that person's insane because you recognize that people get angry and people get violent. Yet that's far worse than simply having a strange belief or a strange way of seeing the world. But yet we see those strange beliefs as somehow more delusional or more, you know, less tethered to reality than somebody who can't control themselves and behaves angrily or behaves violently, and of course, crazy people do do that. You know, when you see a guy on the street corner and he's waving his arms and he's, he's screaming at people, I think that fits most people's definition of insanity. I think most people would agree that that guy has lost it. When somebody couples strange beliefs with outbursts, with violent, angry outbursts. Well, I think everybody can pretty much agree that that person has lost it. But it is interesting that somebody who is functional, somebody who seems to be doing completely fine in life, you know, they can be judged as somehow delusional or insane just for thinking that way when nothing else about their conduct is unhinged. 
And it's, of course, important to know who you're talking to. It's important to have confidants. You know, I was listening to John Butler, who I like a lot. He does these YouTube videos. He's a very old man, an elderly man. And most of his videos are based on just simple spiritual talk. You know, he'll cover meditation. He'll cover Christianity. And they're just kind of these little check-in videos, and I've grown to really like them. He's not a particularly well-known guy, but... He's got everything, you know. He's he's the he's the ultimate archetypal sage, and he he'll do these videos in nature or in front of a church. But he did one, his most recent one, and he he receives letters from people, and sometimes he'll address questions that people have, mainly about just the spiritual experience. And a woman wrote to him. She's a psychologist and also a, a self proclaimed Christian, and she was talking about how her boyfriend's not a Christian, and how, as a result, like, she's she's tried to push Christianity on him, and he's, of course, gone in the opposite direction, as is typical. Anytime you try to push something on somebody, you're more likely to get them going in the opposite direction. But she was talking about how she has problems with her coworkers and her neighbors. Basically, what came across in this letter is that she's incredibly self-righteous, and probably tries to talk about these Christian beliefs at inappropriate times. And what came through in this letter as well is the fact that she's behaving in a very unchristian way. You can tell that she's very aggro. And I mean, that again gets into anger, but I mean, it's like a lack of self-awareness for one. Just a lack of awareness, period. And I'd never seen John Butler really cut into somebody, and he didn't get angry but he was highly critical of this woman's letter, and I've never seen him do that. And it was it was pretty amazing, actually, to see him go there, where you could tell that he was really not happy with the the way this woman was conducting herself. And he's a non-judgmental guy, you know. He's he's this very kind, peaceful, sage-like old British man. But he really sliced into this woman for the way that she was expressing herself the way that she was trying to express her spirituality. And one thing he pointed out was, you know, knowing when to talk about this stuff for one. And in reference to himself, he was like, I have this YouTube channel where I talk about these things. And that's something that I relate to immensely because I don't talk the way I talk on this show to most people. I'm very, this show might be boring to you, but I think I'm much more boring in terms of the things that I tend to talk about with people I know, most people. You have your confidants, and that's that's sort of what I'm getting at here, is you have your confidants, you have people that might not see the world the same way you do, but you know that they are comfortable hearing how you see the world. Maybe not every conversation needs to be about the same things. Maybe not every conversation needs to be you expounding about something that most people aren't going to want to hear about, but you do have your confidence, and at times you can share about these things. You can talk about these things that you can't talk about with most people. And, of course, it's nice to have a little show. In the same way John Butler was saying, yeah, you know, I have a YouTube show where I can talk about these things, but you can't necessarily expect the other people in your life to care. Which is why it's so special when you meet people who do, when you talk to people who do. That's one of the wonderful things about life is that while you can't talk about everything to anyone, there are some people that you can talk about anything to. And that might not mean every single moment they want to hear your shit, 
but the fact that you can talk to them about it at all is a special thing. And uh, I think aesthetics are one of those things. Visuals are one of those things. Because, you know, I, I forget that I even like art. You know, I know it sounds ridiculous. I forget that I'm even an artist. And I forget that I have developed a certain taste and a certain sense for some of these things. Beyond taste, actually. I didn't mean to say taste, but just a sense that goes even beyond taste, but gets into ideas like composition. And, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I forget that I even have this baseline that I've developed for like how I perceive art. And I guess I, I hate to talk about this stuff, to be honest. I mean, there's maybe one or two people I know who I will actually talk to this, talk to about this stuff, because it is really the definition of pretentious. It's the definition of art school, and I don't know what art school is like because I've never been there. But it makes me feel like I'm an art student or something to get into this. And I had an experience in college where I took, I never took any art classes, but I did take one. I guess what you'd call it an art philosophy class, where we we went through a lot of classic art and we discussed it and we wrote papers about you know I don't know I don't I don't I don't really remember what the point even was uh, but I remember I was very put off by the sorts of discussions that we would have in class especially when we would look at paintings during lectures and then kids would raise their hands college kids and they would of course give some kind of feedback on what they thought of Mondrian or whatever and I just you know, I kept my mouth shut for the most part. Not because I'm better than them. It just I, it just didn't feel right to say anything, and I didn't really enjoy hearing from people. I think, again, it gets back to the idea that that's a subject that you kind of have to have confidence. You have to have certain people that you talk to about those things, or you have to have certain little platforms. And I wouldn't want this show to be about art philosophy, for example. But I am a, someone who responds very strongly to aesthetics, and I don't think it's a surprise that aesthetics do give even secular-minded people something akin to a spiritual response. And one of those is symmetry. Because it's not just a, a spiritual response in the sense that you're attracted to something. Something can also drive you away and there's something very disturbing to me about symmetry, perfect symmetry. I like balance, and I think what this episode's probably going to be about, the bigger picture of what this episode's going to be about, almost 20 minutes in, is symmetry opposed to balance. Because if you were to tell somebody, what is a, a perfect visual representation of balance? They would probably imagine a perfectly symmetrical image, but that's not balance. It is, but it's not the definition. It's not the whole of balance. Something can be varied. Something can be not perfectly symmetrical, but still be balanced. And that's one of those intangibles, because as an, as an artist, you know, as somebody who draws, I never think about the composition of what I'm doing. It, it, it's purely intuitive. I just know if something feels right or not, and it's not always successful. Whether, I, whether it feels right or not, I'm not always successful at drawing something balanced, but I don't map out how things are, are going to be balanced before I actually draw. Like, I don't place something here. I don't, I don't do a sketch, 
You know, I don't put a triangle down and be like, well, this has to be on this part of the triangle. You know, there's things like the golden mean, the golden ratio, and those are very real. And you find those in many places. But I don't think about that before I do it. And I know when I'm done or I know while I'm working if something does fall into that, I guess. I guess I I never think about the golden ratio. I never think about actual shapes. But I just know if something is balanced or not. I know if something has a certain flow to it. And I would say if I think about anything while I'm drawing, it is the flow. It is the flow. It is the woman named Flo, F-L-O, who I'm drawing or the cryptopsy drummer, Flo Mornier, whatever his name is. Whatever his name is, I think I got it right. Uh, you know, it's it's when you're drawing a person named Flo. No, but I, I think far more about Flo. But that said, you want to get that kind of balance. Even if you could get out a protractor and measure it out and be like, look at what you did is perfectly balanced. It's got a, it's perfectly triangular. The points of emphasis are perfectly triangular. Oh, this fits into the golden ratio. You know, even if that's the end result, it's not something I'm conscious of. And, you know, that's what I want to get into, too, is one of the strongest pieces of evidence against symmetry being the the end-all, be-all of balance is a triangle. It is threes. And there's a reason why a rule of threes is found everywhere, not just in art, but, I mean, it's obviously found in religion. I mean, you have trinities. I don't need to give all the examples because you will find them everywhere. The Egyptians with their pyramids. you got the, the Christians with the holy trinity. Even the gays. Even the gays got their upside-down triangle, which I don't even know what that represents. But it means something to them. It's, it's their icon. And you'll find it in countless places. Threes. Even characters. Even trios. You'll find that there's something to be said for a trio. Three's Company. The show Three's Company. It wouldn't have worked with four people. You know, so you see that. I mean, you think about... There's just something to that relationship of threes. And on a compositional level, there's something to it where the idea that this thing that is incapable, I mean, I I wouldn't say incapable, but something that is, you wouldn't associate the number three with symmetry. Because you think about symmetry as something that can be perfectly divided in half. And when a drawing is perfectly symmetrical, that's exactly what it is. It's something that is basically mirrored. And I find perfect symmetry extremely disturbing, especially in art. And the worst the worst possible version of that is the Photoshop effect where you can actually, it's called mirror, I believe, where it takes half of an image and it mirrors it perfectly on the other side. And when I see that, I'm just, I want to run a thousand miles in the opposite direction and jump off a cliff into a burning volcano. Because that, that to me, that is just one of the most visually repulsive images. And if you like that and you've used that, that I'm not, I don't hate you. I don't hate you. But for me, when I see that effect, when I see that actual digital effect, that is the worst possible version. But it's not just the digital version. It's also when I see a drawing that is extremely well done, but it's perfectly mirrored. 
And even if there's a little bit of nuance, even if you can tell that somebody drew the whole thing, I don't like that it's perfectly mirrored. I just There's something that I find just on a gut level, on a visceral level, that I find just disturbing, and I can't get past it. And people will say, too, like, well, what's the... What makes a person attractive? What makes a person attractive to you? And people will say symmetry. They say symmetrical people are more attractive. And I know what they mean, but it's not completely true. Because I've thought about this ever since I heard that, because I hear symmetry. Obviously, I have some sort of... some sort of... uh, aversion to symmetry and I just hearing the word itself disturbs me kind of like uh, Muslims being disturbed by you know somebody even suggesting the idea of representing Muhammad in visual form even just saying the word symmetry makes me go hey careful there careful <laughs> even just the word itself because you say symmetry and I start to see it and then I start imagining people creating perfectly symmetrical things. And the reality is, few people are perfectly symmetrical. And I know what they mean when they say attractive people tend to be symmetrical. You know, the most obvious way way of understanding that is that we don't like somebody who has one eye up on their forehead and the other eye down on their cheek. We don't like somebody who one side of their mouth is sticking up. We don't like it when someone's nose is bent to the side. We don't like it when someone's missing an ear. That's the most literal take on the idea of symmetrical attractiveness. But it basically, someone's proportioned. But we like moles. You know, we like a mole to be on the side of someone's face, and we would prefer there to be one. We would prefer just one mole on Cindy Crawford's cheek. If she had mirrored moles, mirrored moles... If Cindy Crawford had mirrored moles on her face, we wouldn't find it as attractive. So we like decorations that are not symmetrical. While we like things to be proportioned, we like things to be balanced, we don't necessarily like them to be a perfect mirror image of each other. And I just have this aversion to that visually. It's almost, it's too square. It's, it's just, it's, there's something square about it to me. And it's, and it's not representative of balance because balance to me means that any number of different elements can be at play and they might not be a perfect image of each other, yet they support each other because that's what balance is, is support. So you can look at something and you just intuitively know that it is balanced and some things are meant to be unbalanced, imbalanced. Unbalanced, or are you more of an unbalanced guy or an imbalanced guy? Um, but uh, you know, you, you can look at something and you just you can immediately process it. Your mind immediately processes something, and a large part of how you respond to a visual is whether or not it's balanced. And symmetry is almost cheating. It's so easy to make something balanced through symmetry that it's almost cheating in that way. And I think some things are meant to be symmetrical. But if you even look at architecture, you know, yeah, there's some symmetrical architecture that's impressive. You know, you can think of a temple that is perfectly symmetrical and there's something impressive about it. There are things that are meant to be symmetrical. It's not like I think that nothing should be. 
nothing should be symmetrical. It's not like I actually believe that. But some, you know, you can look at houses, for example, and very rarely do you see a house that is perfectly symmetrical with the door in the middle, windows on each side, a perfect pitched roof. You see it. I mean, my last house was basically a shack, a cinder block shack, and it was perfectly symmetrical. And there was something also disturbing about it. And a lot of people felt disturbed by my house. (laughs) They did. And uh, I don't think they would have said it's because it's symmetrical. I think they would have said it's because it's a weird little cinder block shack and you keep the, the, the blinds closed all day, every day, and you come and go at strange hours. Maybe that maybe it had more to do with me. I mean, someone once called my house the murder shack. I didn't call it that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, you'll see houses where the door is on one side. My house, the current house I'm living in, I'm living in my mom's old house, uh, the door is on one side and the garage takes up another side and up top there's symmetry because there are symmetrical elements. Like I don't mind symmetrical elements. Like if you look at the top of my house, there are two windows that are perfectly symmetrical, but the bottom of the house isn't symmetrical. The bottom of the house is actually incredibly imbalanced, a huge garage door. And then on the other side, a little porch with a front door windows are on that side. You know, it's, you'd think that that would be aesthetically unpleasing. And some people might find this era of houses. Some people might find this kind of subdevelopment just naturally unpleasing. But something does make sense about it. Something does make sense about the design of this house, even though the bottom is completely unbalanced and the top is symmetrical. And we see it a lot in architecture. We see a lot of imbalance in architecture and when things are too balanced or even mirrored, like to me, one of the most disturbing visuals, one of the most disturbing residential visuals to me are duplexes because they are pretty much the architectural embodiment of that Photoshop mirrored image effect. It's like you took a house and then you mirrored it on the opposite side. Duplexes to me are extremely disturbing for that reason. The fact that they're these mirrored houses like you take a house and then you just mirror it and connect it. I got nothing against I have nothing against anybody who lives in duplexes just to give a disclaimer. I have nothing against somebody who lives in a duplex. Duplex duplex owners are great people. But the visual of a duplex is highly disturbing. The symmet- the symmetry of a duplex is disturbing. And using that word makes me think of something, you know, I I read one book by Anton LaVey many years ago, and I'm a little hesitant to bring him up, but I mean, that said, there were a lot of great memorable points he made in this book. I guess I'm hesitant to talk even about secular Satanism. I'm hesitant to bring that into the fold, even though that book was filled with memorable ideas. But hey, you know, what the heck? What the heck? Let's talk about him. You know, one of the things he talks about in this book is the trapezoid, the shape, a trapezoid, how it's essentially a pyramid with a top lopped off. It's like a pyramid, but you cut the point off at a certain point and how people find that shape fundamentally disturbing, like it's supposed to have more. When you see a trapezoid, you don't just see a rectangle, you don't see a circle, you don't see a triangle. What you see is a pyramid with the top removed. And see, it's like 
you're visualizing something that isn't there, and because it's not there, and because it's this kind of awkward shape, you feel a little bit disturbed. And people, of course, have used trapezoidal shapes. I mean, there's like ziggurats, there's different temples and things that have used that shape, and it's a powerful shape in its own right. But when you see a trapezoid by itself with the top cut off, there is something inherently disturbing about it. Something has been removed. Some, as Anton LaVey actually said, when you see a trapezoid, something is missing and it bothers you. And I, I found that so funny when I read it because it made complete sense to me. And it bothers you. <laughs> and it's very true. And I feel the same way about symmetry. And maybe a symmetrical trapezoid, which is there any other kind? Uh, is there any other kind of trapezoid except a symmetrical trapezoid? Uh, you know, a symmetrical trapezoid might be hell. Hell might exist within a symmetrical trapezoid. And in saying that, I just crossed somebody's threshold of insanity, talking about like having your own, uh, having your own basis for like what is insane in another person and what's not. In saying that hell exists within a symmetrical trapezoid, I either became insane in somebody's eyes or I became ultra sane, depending on who's listening. But I just love that idea of of the disturbing nature of a trapezoid. It is imbalanced in a way, even though it's not. You know, even though a trapezoid is symmetrical, there is something unbalanced about it. Which is interesting that something can be symmetrical and unbalanced. And I don't know how I would really put that into words. It's more, it's more of a feeling. Uh, but it's interesting that if you added the top of the pyramid back to the trapezoid and made it a triangle, it would become balanced again, at least the way I see it. And, you know, the triangle, of course, is threes. And as I was saying, you know, threes have some sort of magical power, both visually, both the idea of them. And we often create these trinities but it also does play out on a compositional level like in music for example if you play something three times it does something that playing it two times doesn't and it does something that playing it four times doesn't and I'm going to try to explain this as best I can because I'm not I don't know anything about traditional music composition I'm not I wouldn't consider myself a musician. You know, I play guitar, bass, you know. I I have played some things that are somewhat traditional. You could call them traditional in some sense, as well as experimental music. But in writing a melody and playing a melody on, let's say, guitar, you get a feeling for how many times you should play it. And there are some melodies that, yeah, you should play them four times, or five times. It's, it's weird. As you play it, something just feels right. And I would never be able to break that down. And I wouldn't want somebody to break that down either. Because that's when your intuition is operating at its full power, at least in the context of, you know, creation, where you just know how many times playing something feels right. But I find that playing something three times has a certain power to it. And I remember my friend Miles talking to me about this. I remember having a conversation with him about threes about, God, six, 15 or 16 years ago we were talking about it because he's an exceptional guitarist but also an incredibly intuitive guitarist. 
like technically he's very good at playing, but he, it's, he also, a lot of that is through his own creative intuition. And we were talking about playing things in threes, how, you know, it just sounds right to play something three times. And that's not a number that a lot of people would, in, would play if they were thinking about it. A lot of people are like, we play this four times. They just will they they will decide to play something four or eight times because that's the symmetrical part of their brain. Well, it turns out your brain's symmetrical, but that's the symmetrical part of their brain. It's the same part of their brain that thinks, "Oh, I want to create something balanced, so it's going to have to be a perfect mirror image." If you look at it head on, that's the same part of the brain when somebody's writing a riff or or a, a melody and they think, "I have to play this four times." They think you're just supposed to. Because it can be evenly divided in half that way. But if you've played something three times, and like there are some things that sound right when you play them four times. There are a lot of riffs, there are a lot of notes or uh, melodies that if you play them four times, that's what feels right. It's not like you should never play something four times. It's not like things should never be symmetrical. But there are certain melodies where if you play them three times, they almost operate like this, where the first time you play the melody that establishes that the melody exists. And I'm, I'm talking about this from a listener's point of view. The first time you play the melody, it establishes that the melody exists. The second time you play the melody, it reinforces it. It communicates to the listener that this isn't just a one-off. This isn't just improv. Even though you can tell if something's improv or not in most cases by just how it sounds the first time. But still, you play something a second time to reinforce it, to establish that this is a thing that is being consciously played. And then the third time you play it is the momentum into the next part. So the first time you play the melody, that's just the creation itself. That's planting the idea of the melody in the listener's head. Second time you play the melody, you're reinforcing the existence of that melody as something other than an aberration. You're reinforcing the fact that it was a conscious decision to write and play that melody. The third time you play it, it's almost like letting go of the bowling ball. It's almost like it's the momentum that goes into the next part. And that momentum would have been tapered off a little bit if you had played it a fourth time. It would have squared it off, and it would have actually cut down on the momentum that it has going into the next part. And of course, the next part has to make sense for the momentum to guide that melody into the next melody or whatever the part is. But, you know, and, and I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't even want to be quoted on this I don't even like that I'm breaking down why playing something three times makes sense, but that's the best way I could ever hope to explain it, is that, you know, the creation is number one, reinforcement is number two, momentum is number three, and symmetrical, playing something a symmetrical number of times, like four or eight, I find doesn't have the same momentum, and you don't always want that momentum. You don't always want something to have, you don't, you don't always want something to close out with momentum. Sometimes you want it to just be boxed off. And that's what happens if you play something four or eight times or an even number of times. And somebody who studies music theory would probably just hear this and say, you're an idiot. You know, they probably would. And I would welcome that. They'd say, you're an insane idiot. You know, they probably would say that. And that's totally fine, because what I'm talking about isn't just music. 
What I'm talking about is balance. I mean, it's it's why triptychs are a thing. I mean, you could just go down the list, a million examples of things that are done in threes and why threes are, why dividing things into thirds makes sense. And, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. And I've what actually got me thinking about, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. I've been thinking about the things coming in threes. And I mean, even like Ghost of Christmas Past, Ghost of Christmas Present, Ghost of Christmas Future, which let's get rid of the ghosts and just say past, present, future, another set of threes. I mean, you could really lose your mind thinking of how many times and places threes make sense. But I can tell you that A Christmas Carol would probably not be a successful story. It would probably not be this widely adapted story that has been a constant in all of our lives in different forms, from Mickey Mouse to made-for-TV specials. You know, A Christmas Carol would probably have much less significance if there were four ghosts. You know, the fact that there are three ghosts does something to the entire story. And something that got me wanting to talk about this today was there's this video on YouTube of... It's the original teenagers, you know, who played with Frankie Lyman in the the 50s, I guess it was. Old doo-wop group, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, very famous... And the original teenagers, the backing group, they're still alive. Frankie Lyman, of course, died of a, a dope overdose. And they have performed since then with different vocalists, including a younger guy. But they did a performance at one of those doo-wop reunion specials years ago with Kenny Vance. And Kenny Vance was originally one of the backing members of Jay and the Americans, another old doo-wop group. And he has since then gone out on his own, and he he has a group, Kenny Vance and the Planetones. But anyway, long story short, Kenny Vance performed with the Teenagers, and they did I'm So Happy, you know, one of their biggest hits. But before the performance, they did an acapella version of I'm So Happy in the parking lot, and it was filmed on a cell phone. And this was years ago, so it was, you know, an earlier, it's kind of a gritty video and it's just them singing in a parking lot, probably the same way they all started out in the 50s. And it's Kenny Vance with the original Teenagers, and they're singing I'm So Happy. And at the start, they're doing the intro. And keep in mind, this is just for themselves. And it's incidentally being filmed by somebody's cell phone. But these guys are just doing it for themselves because they love it. And that comes through so heavily. It's ma- it's a truly a magical moment. And so they're singing it, and they start out, and... Kenny Vance initially does the intro to the song twice, and then he goes into the song, and the, the kind of like the band leader, he cuts him off, and he's like, no, 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 three times, intro three times. And it's funny to me that he, he stops him, because they easily could have, they were just going into it, and it sounded good. They did the intro two times, and then started to launch into the song, and if you weren't them, nothing sounded off. It sounded like these wonderful singers having a magical moment, uh, you know, doo-wop magic in a parking lot. But you could tell it was very important to this the, the band leader of the teenagers, the bass, he's the bass vocalist. You could tell it was very important to him that they do it three times. It was very important to him that they launch into the song with the right momentum. And I'm, I'm of course, doing some mind reading here. 
But you'd think that he would have just let them go, given that it was a no-stakes performance. There were no stakes to it. They weren't performing on stage. They weren't recording for an album. Somebody just happened to be recording this moment with a phone. But it wasn't going to be used for anything that they knew of. I mean, it turns out it ended up on YouTube, and I watch it all the time. But it wasn't for any particular reason, but he it was important that they do the intro three times. And I think it does relate to what I'm talking about, where that's what gave the song its proper momentum. And I just like that he interrupted the, the flow. He stopped everything. He said, no, no, we have to do the intro three times. And the result is, is a, a magical moment. I recommend looking it up. Look up uh, Kenny Vance and the Teenagers, I'm So Happy. Kenny Vance is wearing like a stocking cap and sunglasses with a backpack over his shoulder. One of the guys, one of the teenagers is holding up a, an old flip phone because he obviously wants somebody to hear this performance. And I, I watched this as a power-up, and it is a truly magical moment. And speaking of YouTube, this might be revealing a little too much, but I'll say it anyway. But if I find a particular video... If I, if I find like a certain power-up video, even on something like YouTube, I will listen to it three times in a row. Maybe not right in a row, but I might listen to it three times throughout that day, and I very consciously choose three. If I'm trying to cultivate something, I will watch a YouTube video three times, and that kind of gives me a certain momentum, and it's not musical. And I mean, you could be listening to a song three times, and you might not always want to do that, but I would say pay attention to threes, and if you feel that something has a certain draw for you, if something is giving you a certain power-up, if it feels like it's tapping into something, if it's transcendental in some way, I recommend playing it three times, and you think, YouTube... YouTube's a freaking... How is YouTube magical? It's because all technology is man, uh, is magical. All technology, all everything has the same capacity for transcendence and magic and whatever you want to call it. Even if you want to get scientific about it, it has whatever that is too. I just don't care whatever it is you're going to call it in that context. But, you know, technology... I, let me just get into that because I kind of talked about it recently with talking about how paganism, you know, pagans will use any tool available to them. And this plays in perfectly with that, where there are people who think cell phones, smartphones aren't magical. YouTube isn't magical. Books are magical. Records are magical. How can you possibly experience some sort of transcendental magical phenomena through YouTube? And it's like, for the same reason you can experience it through a book or a movie. And, you know, you can experience synchronicity through the internet. And it doesn't feel as cool. It doesn't, it doesn't feel as cool to you as experiencing synchronicity through a grimoire. Grimoire. You know, it doesn't feel as cool to you because you are, once again, an aesthetically informed person. But you think people who only use oral storytelling would have been resistance to the invention of books. People who only read manuscripts would have been resistant to the idea of books when they were invented. At some point, somebody saw books the same way that you might see smartphones. And that doesn't mean there isn't something more aesthetically beautiful about books, 
uh, I mean, it does. I mean, because I will say that I will say that books are far more aesthetically beautiful than the digital medium. But we're not talking about material form here. We're talking about these phenomena. And I've experienced synchronicity through the internet with people. I mean, all these things are fueled by people. It's why isolation does something negative to most people, unless it's for a very specific purpose, because people are magic, and interacting with people is far more likely to produce synchronicity or other what might feel like paranormal phenomena, unlikely phenomena. People produce that, interacting with people. I mean, there's a reason why when you meet a new girl and you hit it off, why you might suddenly start experiencing general synchronicity in your life. Something is lit by your interactions with people. Or when you meet a new friend, when somebody becomes just a, a quick friend, when you just meet somebody and you're like, oh yeah, we were meant to be friends, you might start experiencing a heightened sense of something. And one of the most common ways that you experience that is through synchronicity. Coincidences start coming up. References start repeating themselves in ways that don't seem entirely, they don't seem statistically possible. And you could say, oh yeah, well, you know, with the internet, you're going to experience synchronicity on the internet because there's so much information. Because you're, you're so likely to experience, you're so likely to see so much different information. Like if you're cruising through Wikipedia, you're way more likely to experience synchronicity because you're way more likely to come in contact with a bunch of ideas. And the more ideas that are available to you, the more certain ideas will repeat. And I understand that line of thinking, but I would say the opposite might also be true, where because there is so much information, it seems more likely that you would come across new information continually. It seems like you would come across new words and new ideas continually, and it actually seems more statistically improbable to me that, you know, assuming you're looking at a broad array of information, it it seems more statistically improbable to me that you would continue to see the same things over and over again or experience the same ideas over and over again when there is more information available. So I can see that going both ways. But it, that that aspect, that aspect of it actually doesn't even matter because what I'm getting at is just that these phenomena can be experienced through everything. They can be experienced in a total void of information. They can be experienced by an illiterate person, an illiterate Luddite who doesn't read books nor use technology, somebody who lives in a log cabin with nothing, nothing but fire, baby. You know, someone who lives with nothing but fire can still experience all of these things, and they might be even more likely to experience it because they're living a more focused life. But uh, the, the point is, is that just because something seems aesthetically unappealing, because I agree, when you think about spirituality or magic or just any kind of experience that feels transcendental, the idea of experiencing that through a computer, the idea of experiencing that through a smartphone, doesn't really seem satisfying. It doesn't seem cool. It doesn't seem like something you would want to visually represent. You know, you can imagine a cool painting of a magical sorceress holding some book, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that book is. 
I wonder what book that sorceress is holding. Meanwhile, if she was depicted with a smartphone in her hand or, a, or she's holding a laptop up, you'd be like, ooh, ooh. But it's no different when it comes to your ability to actually access and interact with these, let's just call them transcendental elements. You know, it, it doesn't actually change based on what you're holding, even though certain things are more decor, they're more appealing on a decorative level. And that gets again back into ritual. That that goes back into ritual where we like decoration. And if decoration makes you feel like you're participating in something, go for it. Like, if you don't feel like you're going to graduate high school without attending the actual graduation ceremony, even though you're going to get your diploma, even though you're going to go to college next semester, if you don't feel spiritually like you've graduated, if you don't attend the actual graduation ceremony in your cap and gown, by all means, go experience that. That's a powerful experience. But don't think that that itself is is the process. Don't think that that itself is what makes you no longer a high school student. Don't believe that that's what gives you your diploma. And don't get caught up on the diploma either, but I'll I'll save some time and not get into that. It's just a piece of paper. Um, But it is the same thing here, what I'm talking about with, you know, decoration, where, you know, just because a book looks cooler doesn't mean that it has any power that you can't find in a modern device or with no device. I mean, a sorceress with nothing in her hand. It's not just a book or a laptop or a phone. A sorceress with nothing in her hand can be just as powerful. But it is helpful to have props. I mean, I'm not... What what I mean here is like... I'm not downplaying ritual or props. I'm not saying that those can't be important. If that makes you feel like you are participating in something, if that helps kind of lubricate you for that experience, by all means, go for it. But I think it's important to know that that itself is not the process. That is just a decorative way of engaging with it. And, you know, it might seem silly, like when you think, oh, uh... Yeah, you know, I'm a sorcerer. I'm a high priest. And I participate in rituals that cultivate magical energy. I cultivate spiritual, transcendental energy. I engage with transcendental elements by watching the same YouTube video three times in a row. (laughs) It's like, it doesn't sound good, does it? But you should embrace that too. Because, I mean, that's almost a form of the the sage who lives in the gutter. Not that I would want to do that. You know, I don't necessarily look up to that. But, I mean, that's almost one of the... It's, it's for the it, Sometimes embracing filth is itself a magical experience, you know. And I do think, you know, at least people like me have a tendency to see technological aesthetics, like, like the idea of somebody holding a smartphone, is just aesthetically unappealing. You know, in the very first Every Night's a School Night episode, I talked about how the idea of a painting of a bunch of people walking down the street, a beautiful classical painting of people walking down the street, but they all have smartphones in their hands, is not visually appealing to me. Maybe it will be in 30 years, 
Maybe that idea needs to become antiquated. Maybe the, the visual of people holding smartphones needs to become archaic. You know, in the same way that today people look at photographs of a guy in a three-piece suit smoking a cigarette and they say, he's so cool. He's, he's just so cool with his cigarette and his three-piece suit. Meanwhile, that was totally mundane then. Now we look at it and we think, how come everybody was so cool, dude? Everybody was so cool in 1920 because they wore three-piece suits and the woman wore big gowns and everybody was smoking cigs. You know, we look back at that and meanwhile, that was ultra mundane. And now because you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes in all these places and nobody dresses up in suits, we look back at that and we think it's like very impressive. So maybe when we move beyond smartphones, people would be able to look back at a photograph of people walking down the street, staring at their smartphones and think, man, those people were cool. Weren't those people cool with their smartphones? Man, I think I'm going to get a smartphone and and be an old-timey person. You know, it, that's just the process of life. That's just the the how things work. You need a certain space. Things need to change for you to see what was once mundane as something powerful and special. Um but uh you know, it's something to keep in mind if you feel like these modern devices are somehow less magical. The tools available to you as a modern human are somehow less potent. And I'm not going to say they're more potent, even though you can do more with them. And I think there would be an argument for that. I think there would be an argument that because you can communicate with more people, because you can take more in and put more out there, through, say, a smartphone or a laptop. Someone might say that's more potent because it opens up the field further. I don't know that I believe that. Because like I said, you know, the sorceress might not have a book in her hand. She might not have a laptop in her hand. She might have nothing in her hand. And I'm not going to say that having something in your hand is automatically more potent than having nothing. Because I think the real magic is within you and your interaction with the world. And you don't need anything. It's why so many teachings come back to the idea that you're born with what you have. It just has to become activated. You just have to learn that you're an antenna. And maybe that's another one of those ways that, oh, I know somebody's crazy when they start referring to themselves as an antenna. You had me up until now, but the second you started referring to yourself as an antenna... I'm done, you you freak. Yeah, I went to I went to a therapist and uh, I, went, I went to a psychotherapist and I told them that uh, I just I feel like an antenna. Now, if you're a psychotherapist, you should diagnose people as antennas. Don't say, oh, we we've determined that you have uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, with a, a hint of, of manic depression and anxiety, just say, oh, I think I have the perfect diagnosis for you. You are an antenna, and so am I. And you've always been an antenna, and everybody's an antenna. You just have to be an activated antenna. But you might have that experience where you suddenly realize, oh, I've been activated. I have been activated and. While you have to activate devices, like books have to be printed, 
drawings have to be drawn. You have to type in some activation key to have access to an email account. You yourself are activated in a way more experiential way. I mean, that's Gnosis. And uh, you yourself, though, are simply activated through some sort of experiential process. But you don't need anything in your hand in order to be activated. But if but but the thing is, you shouldn't limit yourself either. You don't need to go running through the streets naked. You don't need to go live in a in the wilderness naked and be like, well, you know, I don't need anything. Yeah, I don't need anything in order to be a magical being. So I might as well run through the forest naked. You know, you don't need to do that. You can be just as potent sitting at your computer all day. Not that you should do that. But the point is, is just that it's it's not that having less makes you better either. And I mean, this gets into the idea of material wealth. This gets into the idea of happiness and material wealth. Like, oh, you... All the money in the world won't make you happy, which is true. But the same is true for, you know, becoming activated. It's like all of the devices in the world, all of the occult books, all of the cool-looking occult books in the world won't make you any more activated. You know, you don't need any of those, it turns out. You don't need any occult books in order to develop some sort of, you know, in order to be spiritually activated. It might be something completely unlikely, but you have to be open toward that possibility. And this is why I think atheists and people who worship at the altar of science, people who are sucking on a microscope out there, you know, I think one of the reasons why they greatly limit themselves, and they succeed in life, you know, I'm not going to say that they're idiots. They're obviously not. These are often smart people. But one reason why I think these people are always looking for, they're always dissecting things. They're always overanalyzing things, something I'm guilty of. But one of the reasons why they're always digging, digging, digging for these jewels is because I don't think they're open to anything giving them that same sensation. They think that you have to dissect. They think that you have to separate everything out. They think that you have to understand what's inside the thing that you just opened, and there's always another nesting doll. You know, they, they get caught on that track because I think they, they always, they think that everything meaningful in life comes through investigation and analysis, when the reality is it can come from anything. And often when you're not looking for something is when it comes. And I, you know, I am a fan of science. Despite all of the cheap shots I make, I want to make a distinction between science and the altar of science, because I believe those are two completely separate things. And you'll hear stories about inventions, great scientific discoveries, and they come almost through a spiritual process. You'll hear about dreams. You will hear about a scientist who is trying to invent something or trying to understand something. And it's when he walks away and stops caring that the idea comes to him or the experiment goes in a, uh, in a direction he didn't expect. But when you're forcing that, it's not going to work right. Even if you get what you think you want out of it, it's not... It's not experiential. 
it's not experiential knowledge. It's tipping the scales. And and it's lacking a certain amount of openness. And people do the same thing. I mean, people get very scientific about spirituality and religion. And they think, I've got to do it this way. I've got to read this book. I've got to wear this outfit. I've got to follow these rules perfectly. Otherwise, the process won't work. And meanwhile, they're not participating in the process at all. Meanwhile, they're not experiencing the process in any way, really. Because they're so focused on the details. They're so focused. <laughs> they're so focused on the formula. They're so forkist. Are you a forkist? Um, but that's what happens. You know, it's, it's what happens when you obsess over the details and force things. And, uh, you know, is there a way to tie this back into visuals? <laughs> I thought I was going to be talking about artwork and visuals this entire time. But you just go with it. I mean, that's an example. This show is is a lesson for me. Every episode I do of this show is a lesson for me that the more I think that I have everything contained in a certain set of ideas or topics, the more likely it is just to go somewhere else. And of course, you know, what I was talking about at the beginning was this spiritual component of aesthetics, which is really pretentious sounding, and I don't like the way that sounds coming out of my mouth. I just don't have a better way to describe it. But it, you know, it's, it's the same thing, though, what I'm talking about here. I mean, it really is what I'm talking about. There is this mysticism. Obviously, the creative process is one of the main mystical experiences that people readily accept. Like, we accept that certain people pull ideas out of the ether and render them in the form of music, visual art, film, whatever it is. They say things. You know, they write things down. They write their authors they tell stories. We accept, we readily accept that mystical process. And we see artists as mystics. Sometimes too much. I think sometimes we give artists too much credit. Because these things are going on outside of art. I mean, I think the same for the same reason that somebody thinks that an occult book is somehow going to give you access to something that a smartphone isn't, or that an empty hand isn't, for the same reason that somebody is tricked by the aesthetic of a cool-looking occult book, meanwhile, the same process plays out with or without that book. It's the same reason people put artists on a pedestal. People think like, oh, uh, where do you come up with this stuff? Where do, you, where do you come up with this thing? You're a musician. You you're like uh you're like working for God. If you're a musician of any kind, it's like it's like you're you're one of God's soldiers. Where do you come up with this stuff? And while that's you know, I have the same question sometimes. I mean, I'll listen to music that just blows my mind, and I do wonder like, where does all this come from? This is amazing. But we have a tendency to put artists and creative people on this pedestal in the same way that we do, let's say, a cool looking occult or spiritual book with cool symbols on it. It's, again, very decorative. And it's not that the contents are unimportant. It's not that artists or musicians aren't sometimes accessing something, often accessing something transcendental, to use that word again. 
It's that we're tricked into believing that's not going on elsewhere. And we're tricked into believing that's not going on with us, even if we are an incredibly mundane person. Because I think if you've known a broad variety of people, you've had that experience where you're like, hey, I know all these artists, but they're no different than scientists who are just forcing something to happen. And even if the result is good or it's what they want or it's pleasurable in some way, it's useful in some way. It doesn't seem to be a discovery. And so you see where artists almost become like these little scientists who are just digging away. They're putting so much effort in to try to make something happen. And it's very decorative. But you can meet people who you would never expect to have some sort of potent magical energy and they might be somebody who you otherwise would completely write off because they're in like a Nike shirt. You know, it's a girl in a sports bra. You know, but that's the truth is that sometimes it's those people. Sometimes it's somebody who's not celebrated. It's somebody who slips completely under the radar. And in many ways, those feel like the most magical people of all. When you come across somebody who has been activated, (laughs) activated, when you come across somebody who's been activated, yet they've, they haven't gone down, they've done nothing to decorate it. And it's something that they just intuitively stumbled into because they were open or they were the right person. I don't know what that is. But it's not somebody who was trying to do it. And people are often shocked when they meet those people. Because they think... Because it's so unassuming. Like if you meet somebody who has long hair and a beard and beads around their neck and a robe. And they talk very calmly and slowly and vaguely. It's like, oh yeah, this person is this guy is a, a spiritual person, spiritual with a capital S and a copyright symbol after it, a TM, a trademark. But yet you can get way more knowledge from an activated person who you randomly meet who doesn't conform to that idea at all, who is completely unassuming. Somebody on your football team when you're fifteen might have more esoteric knowledge than the guy who writes occult books. And I don't mean to target occult books here. I'm just using that as the ultimate example because it's so aesthetically attractive. Occultism is so aesthetic. And a lot of people are drawn to it for that reason. But it's also a distraction. Because you have to remember that decoration is a distraction. When something is focused entirely on decoration, even though decoration can help somebody get into the spirit, even though wearing their graduation cap is what helps them feel like they're actually graduating, you know, you can easily be distracted by that. You can be distracted by a robe. You can be distracted by beads. You can stare at some symbol somebody invented, you know, for some like, sect of Crowleyan whatever and just think about that when you should be going through an experience or going through a process 
And you can't overthink that either. So, I mean, it's no wonder that people (laughs) are resistant to some of this stuff. It's no wonder people are like, you know what? I'm just going to go suck on the microscope a little more. You know what? I'm going to go, I'm just going to go on the internet and tell people pro wrestling is fake. I'm just going to go, you know, I'm just going to go to music theory class. I mean, God. (laughs) I can completely understand why somebody basically wants to go to somebody and say, can you just show me where the jewels are? I don't even care if they're original. I don't even care if the jewels are unique. Can you just sell me some jewels? Because I don't like going into these mines by myself in pitch black trying to find jewels just on the off chance that I get activated, whatever that means. You know, I completely understand why people want things given to them. I completely understand why people focus on decoration and ritual. And I can understand why that person hears me say, hey, if you think a YouTube video has a certain magical energy, watch it three times, not four, not two. You don't want to be symmetrical about it. Three times. I completely understand why that sounds like stupid garbage to somebody. But it's true. (laughs) It's real. It's as real as all of this other stuff. And you don't need that either. You don't even need YouTube. You don't even need to know what YouTube is. But the point being, you can access these things at any time, any place, any way that's available. Do I have more to say about symmetry? No, I think I covered that. I think I'm just, I think symmetry is just sort of a a visceral reaction I have. I think some people are drawn more towards symmetrical images for whatever reason. I'm not. For whatever reason, I just, I see perfect symmetry and I just turn away. Even when it's good. You know, because every once in a while, someone will send me something that is very symmetrical. Someone will send me art. And I'll think, this is really well done, but on a personal level, I I don't like it because it's too symmetrical. (laughs) It's not, and and it's just the difference between balance and symmetry. Something doesn't have to be perfectly squared, it doesn't have to be perfectly mirrored to be balanced. And balance can come in so many other ways. And threes are a great way of finding balance. Triangles of various shapes, various substance can be a great way of finding balance without relying on two even halves. And this is true for just drawing. This is true for music. This is true for, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where else it plays out. But those are just, you know, on a, on a creation, you know, creative level. Uh, it's true. And there are, of course, aspects of life that you don't want to come in threes. You never want to get involved with a love triangle. (laughs) You never want to be involved with a love triangle. That's where threes get bad. That's where things get unbalanced. When it comes to love, just stick with two. Stick with, you know, one other person. That's what you should do in that situation. There's a time and a place for mirrored images. 
There's a time and a place for perfect symmetry. Uh, I, I, you know, I think love is one of those. <laughs> uh, but visually, you know, artistically, creatively, spiritually, you know, I think you can find balance in other ways. And oftentimes having an uneven number that is nonetheless balanced is a way of achieving that. It's a way of accessing something. But that itself is another decoration. But it's a decoration that I've been able to put to use in my own life. It's a decoration that I'm conscious of, but it still does something. It's still potent. Because you can be conscious of something and still have it be potent. And that's what I would say to somebody who's focused on decoration and ritual. Somebody who thinks, oh, in order for this magical ceremony to be successful, in order for this religious ceremony to have its intended result, I can't acknowledge that it's a ceremony. No, you can acknowledge what you're doing. You can be self-aware. You can know that it's largely decorative without it losing its potency. You, know, you can know that and, and still have and still get the intended result, but you might realize that in knowing it, you don't need the decoration. You don't need the ritual. All you need is YouTube. All you need is a YouTube video that speaks to you, and all you need to do is watch it three times. And if you watch it four times, you're screwed. If you watch a, a magical YouTube video four times, the magic is gone. <laughs> You better keep count. You better keep count. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free Hey.